we made this covenant commitment together as members of Beaumont Baptist Church. Uh, here's the direct quotation from our covenant. I will consider Beaumont Baptist Church a priority in my life. And we have statements like that in our covenant because of scripture passages like this. In Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47, uh, we read this about the early church. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing, to the, uh, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Um, I think one of the things that we can quickly fall into uh, an unhealthy way of thinking and that we can then live that thinking out in everyday life is the idea that we think about uh, our church life and our relationship with one another occupying a specific uh, space and time, namely Sunday mornings like this. this. This is church. We meet on Sunday morning, and we worship God, and we all come together. And obviously, this time is very, very important. God commands it. It's beautiful. It's, it's a wonderful time. In many ways, it's kind of like a family gathering where we come together and we worship corporately. But that's, that's not the only way that, that God portrays our church life together. In fact, if we fall into the, the trap of thinking that Sunday is it and that all the magic, so to speak, happens at the building on Sunday or some midweek time, we don't fully grasp uh, what scriptures tell us about life in the body. Uh, this is a life that we live out together seven days a week in our homes and, and maybe over coffee somewhere. Uh, we love each other in all kinds of ways beyond this day. And so I uh, really just want to pause to say uh, we want to live like that. I want to invite you to think, are you doing that? And just even pause to pray at this time, God, would you give us grace to live out our Christian life all throughout the week with one another uh, by the grace of God? So why don't we just pause together and, and say, God, would you give us grace to live more at more than just Sunday Christians where we gather together, but would you help us to live this Christian life out just as we see in Scripture from the earliest days of God's people together? So let's pray and ask for his help there. God, we recognize that you have called us together as a people. You have brought a people together, your people uh, you have called us the household or family of God. We are a body that should be uh, intimately and closely connected to one another, just as as our human bodies and all of its its various our human bodies and all the members of our bodies function together. Arms, legs, muscles, ligaments, internal organs, all of those things, a unit. And we just recognize that that is how you want us to live at all times in all places here at Beaumont Baptist Church and, and your church wherever it may be found across the globe. And so we ask for your grace. We ask for your help. We ask that you would protect our thinking, that we would not fall into the trap of thinking that, that church is Sunday, that church is some midweek gathering. Lord, help us to see church as as the life that you have called us to as your people. And please help us, please help us in our thinking to think right about these things. And then hopefully our thinking being right to live out what you have called us to do. Would you help us to love one another in all kinds of tangible ways throughout the week? Would you help us uh, to work hard to uh, intertwine our lives together all throughout the week where we are ministering to one another spiritually, where we are praying for one another, where we are gathering uh, of our own volition for those purposes and, and smaller groups and reading the Bible together, talking about those things. God, we just pray that, that that culture would continue to develop in our church. Thank you for how you've already been developing that culture, and we're excited and, and pray that you would continue to do it by your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you're unaware, at this time we offer um, some children's classes and a nursery, and those things are all kind of that direction, and the room's that way. And so kids, you're welcome to head that direction now if you haven't already. Uh, there's signs, kind of what room you should be going to, and I'm sure our teachers will help you uh, get where you should be going. All right, well, this time I invite you all to join me in Mark's Gospel, the 10th chapter. 
Mark 10. We pick up in verse 17 here together this morning. Uh, When I was a youth pastor, I used to run a lot of vacation Bible schools and kid events, and I had this thing that I really enjoyed doing called the two-fisted candy grab. And basically, for something like a vacation Bible school, I had this big treasure chest, and it was just full of candy. And each night, a lucky child, or perhaps two or three, would get to come up to the platform if it was like a vacation Bible school or something like that. And we'd do a big drum roll, and then that kid would get to put both of his hands into the treasure chest and grab as much candy as he possibly could in both of his hands, hence the two-fisted candy grab. And kids loved it. I mean, a kid would do that, his, his or her hands would just be full of candy and grinning from ear to ear. In fact, I think many of the adults were jealous. Why don't we have things like this for adults in church, you know? But the kids were loving it. And I think that picture of a kid grinning from ear to ear with both hands full of candy is really helpful as we approach our text this morning because uh, as people go through life, they may get older, but they still hold many, many treasures in their hands. Uh, Treasures, things that make them happy, things that make them smile, things that make their world actually go round, things they can't imagine life without. And yet what a person holds in his hands is often the thing that hin- is a, becomes a hindrance to following Jesus. I've got this in my hands. In Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, a man with his hands just completely full of things runs up to Jesus. And the text tells us that he's rich. In fact, the other gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke tell us that he's not just rich, he's also young, and he's a ruler with political status of some kind, which is why, he's been, why we've come to know him as the rich, young ruler. And do you know what Jesus tells this man? He tells him, all this treasure that you have in your hands, let go of it and follow me. And what he calls this man to do, he calls all of us to do. He calls you to do. Leave it all and follow Jesus. And so at the outset here, why don't we just read this text, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. I'll read down through verse 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel." who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions 
And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It seems that Jesus lays out three arguments in his words here in this passage, and we want to work through those together this morning. What arguments does Jesus make? First, leave it all and follow Jesus. It is the one and the only thing. That's his first argument. Look back at verse 17. We read there that as Jesus was setting out on his journey, and we might ask for a moment, well, where is he going? And if you skip down to verse 32, uh, that verse tells us they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Why is Jesus headed there? He's headed to Jerusalem, he said. He's going to give his life. He's going to die on a cross. So back to verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey there to do that, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this rich young ruler has a burning question weighing on him, legitimately weighing on him. Uh, I think we need to grasp this. Th- this question is bearing down on this young man. He's feeling it. And perhaps that same question weighs on you too. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And maybe you're working really hard trying to do whatever it is you think you need to do and you're still wondering, what is it? Have I done it? What must I do to enter the kingdom of God might be another way to word it. What must I do to be saved? How can I be assured that I'm going to heaven? I want to know. Tell me. What must I do? And frankly, the man's question reveals that he's not at all confident of his eternal destiny. And maybe you aren't either. You're not sure if, if, if you will spend eternity in heaven with God or if you will spend it in hell. Well, thankfully, this man has come to the right person to find the answer that he and so many others, perhaps you, are searching for. And Jesus, he's going to take his time to get there. But he answers the question this way. There is one thing. One thing. Let's make sure we're really clear on that. One thing. Not a hundred different things. Not ten things. Not five things. Not three things. Jesus said, there's this one thing. And as Jesus interacts with this man, he does so in such a way that reveals what the one thing is not before he explains what the one thing is. And so that's where we'll start as well. Sincere and eager desire is not the thing. This man sincerely wants eternal life. He's eager to have it and, he, he, and to know that he has it. He really, really wants it. Verse 17 explains that this man, he sees Jesus come out of the house or whatever, and he runs up to Jesus with this question. The very speed with which he approaches Jesus conveys his sincere and eager desire for eternal life. He's not messing around. I need this and I want it. But sincere and eager desire is not the one thing. So if you think that wanting to get to heaven will somehow help you get there, it doesn't. And what you could do, if you've got your list of things that you think might help you get to heaven, you can take that thing and you can scratch it right off your list. Also, respect for Jesus is not the thing. In verse 17, we see that this man uh, runs up to Jesus and we read that he knelt down before him. This man is a ruler. People kneel before him, and he has fallen down on his face before Jesus, or at least down on his knees to kneel before him. You may have great and immense respect for Jesus. You may honor Jesus. You may have uh, just sincere awe and reverence for God, the God of heaven. You may have unrivaled respect for him. And so did this man. But respect for Jesus is not 
the one thing. And so if that's one of the things on your list, again, you can take a pencil or a pen and just scratch that one right off the list. Further, moralism or good works, the things that you do, is not the thing. In verse 17, the man asked Jesus, he says, Good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. And in his response to the man, Jesus grabs on to two of the words that the man used in his question. The word good and the word do. Jesus parks right there for a moment. Let's talk about those two words. Good teacher, he calls him. Look at verse 18. And Jesus said to the rich young ruler, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, just to be clear here, Jesus is not denying his own moral goodness. It seems likely that this man does not fully grasp who Jesus is, that he's God. He may see him merely as a good man, and if so, the man might be saying something like this to Jesus. From one good man to another, what must I do? I look up to you. You're you're a, a good teacher. Tell me. And Jesus does not want to get caught in that confusion. And so Jesus responds this way, no one is good except God alone. And Jesus is turning the conversation vertical. He's identifying the one and only standard of goodness as God himself. God alone is good. No one measures up to the standard of God's goodness. This man didn't measure up to that standard, and neither do you. Neither do do I. No matter how moral you may be, you very simply are not good. You cannot somehow be good enough to warrant yourself entry into the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus, he's he's turned this whole conversation vertical. God is the standard of goodness. What mankind tends to do, what we tend to do is, oh, our standard is horizontal. I see myself and I compare horizontally. And if my comparison is good horizontally, if I'm better than others and I'm generally a good human being, then I'm good. Jesus says, no, no, no. The comparable is not horizontal, it's vertical. God alone is good. And when you look up, you are not good. So first, Jesus focuses on the word good, and then he focuses on the word do from the man's question. He asks, what must I do? Well, look at verse 19. Jesus is going to clue in on that word. You know the commandments. He's referring to the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And Jesus starts rattling off some, not all, of the Ten Commandments. And uh, this young man, by human standards, has worked very, very hard at keeping those commands. In fact, as long as the comparison is horizontal, this young man is better than most. Look at verses 20 to 21 now. This young man says to Jesus in verse 20, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Probably from the time that he was a 12-year-old Jewish boy in his uh, Jewish bar mitzvah, mitzvah, kind of his uh, rite of passage into manhood as a Jewish young man. Since that time, I've, I've worked very hard to keep all these commands. In verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. This young man sincerely and eagerly desires to do the right thing. He has immense respect for God, no question. And God's laws. He is a law keeper. He is moral. 
by human standards. He tries to do good and right by his fellow man, by his neighbor, as the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, called him and all of us to do. And Jesus hears all these things. He looks at this man. He loves him. But moralism and good works and the things that we might do are not the one thing. And so again, you've got your list. If that's on there, scratch it right off. I want to ask you a question. We've scratched at least three things off your list. What's left on it? And here's a simple fact for you. That's as true for you as it was for this man. Whatever God calls you to do in his word, whatever God calls you to do in his law, I assure you that you have not done it. Though Jesus didn't mention the first of the Ten Commandments, he's about to indirectly get there, go there. Remember what the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is? You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. And so we ask, well, what is the one thing? I'd word it this way. Bowing before the king is the thing. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. What is it? Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. What is the one thing? Jesus said, leave it all and follow me. Jesus must be your one and only God. He must be your one and only King. He must be your Lord. You must leave whatever it is that is your treasure and follow Him, recognizing His Lordship. Whatever is in your hands, that can't be God. Jesus alone must be your King. For this man, his treasure is his wealth, and he apparently had a lot of it. For you, earthly treasure, it it might be your earthly treasure as well. It might be your wealth. It might be your sin. That might be your treasure. That might be what's in your hand. It might be your status. It might be your family's perspective on you. If I follow Jesus, then I have to let go of that. Bowing before the king means that he is now everything. That's what Jesus is calling this man to. Jesus must be your treasure. Uh, Bowing before the king means that he is your Lord, and wherever he goes, you're going to go behind him. You're going to follow him. But you cannot hold some other treasure in your hand and follow him. I've got my treasure here in this hand, and Jesus, my other treasure in that hand. Jesus calls you to loosen your grip and let it go and leave it all and follow him. It's the one and the only thing. And so the question becomes, just just as what happens for this young man, what's your decision about the thing, the one thing? Well, how did the young man respond? Verse 22 summarizes his response with three simple words. It tells us, that he went away. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away. Sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away. He decided not to follow Jesus. Why? Because He had another God. He had another king. He went away grieving and sorrowful because he couldn't have both. It's either Jesus is my king or this is. And I will go this way following Jesus or I will go that way following my God. You can't have two kings in your life. Either Jesus is your king or something else is king. And Jesus is so clear. He doesn't have any co-regents. I don't reign beside any other king. I don't share my rule with any other God. 
I won't share my immense value and worth with any other of your, your low-level treasures. So back to the original question that this man asked. What must I do to have eternal life? Well, acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ above all. And hand your life over to him. It might sound something like this. Jesus, I am not good. I'm a great sinner. And Jesus, I am not the king. In fact, I'm done being king. I'm done having other kings. You alone are Lord. You alone are king of the kingdom. You are now my Lord. You are now my king. Jesus, King of all, I bow before you. Here is my life, and I'm going to follow you. There's an old legend about how, how those in Southeast Asia used to trap monkeys. I don't really know if they ever did this or not. It seemed pretty nifty, though. Basically, what you do is you take a gourd or a coconut, and you bore a hole through it, and you, and you take out all, all that's inside, the gourd or coconut. And this hole that you bore, it's, it's just large enough for a monkey to get his hand in. And you then fill the coconut or the gourd with something that's going to be appealing to the monkey. Rice or maybe peanuts or something like that. And then you take that and you tether it to a stake in the ground or a tree and up comes the monkey. And he looks in the little hole. And he sees peanuts or rice and he sticks his hand through the hole and then he grasps what's inside of there and then he's trapped. Because the monkey, he's, he may try to get his hand out, but as long as it's clenched, it's not coming out. And the monkey becomes so fixated on his treasure that even though he could be free, he actually hangs on to that treasure above all else. His clenched fist can't get back out. And the only way to escape the trap is very simply let go of the treasure. You realize that you can't be free from condemnation. You can't be free uh, from hell, so to speak, while clutching your treasure. I've got my gods. I've got my stuff. And I'm going to hold on to it. You must let go of your treasure, your other gods, and bow before the one true king and follow him. That's what Jesus is calling this man to. Leave it all. And follow Jesus. It's the one and only thing. And so, a couple of probing questions for you. Have you done that? You mentioned that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And as the story continues to unfold, what is Jesus going to do? He is going to go to Jerusalem where he will die. And he will spread out his hands and hang on a cross for the sins of all mankind. And pay the price for your sins and mine willingly so that all of God's judgment and condemnation that you deserve, Jesus was taking it there on the cross. And three days after he died, he rose victoriously from the grave. He's alive today because he's God. That God the Father, the, the resurrection is God's stamp of approval on the work of the Son of Jesus Christ. It was enough. And Jesus is calling you to say, leave it all behind. He is God. He is Lord. And what he did, that's what I need. I need Jesus to save me. He needs to be my Lord and my God. Have you done that? Have you said, okay, Jesus, I drop it all. All my treasure, all my sin. You are my treasure. You died for me. I want to follow you. And a specific question for those of you who may be thinking about that, what is your one thing? Or maybe it's more than one thing, but honestly, it may just be one thing. It was one thing for this rich young ruler. What's your one thing that's keeping you from the one thing? For him, it was his wealth. What's it for you? Well, I don't want to give up this. I love that. That's your thing. Whatever that is, Jesus is calling you, drop it. Let it go. 
I must be Lord and King. Follow me. And I also want to make a challenge at this time to anyone who's, you, you've, you've prayed some prayer? And very simply, because you think so, you've prayed some prayer, you're like, good. And one of the things that happens, it's very contrary to Scripture, is people get this idea in their mind, well, you just pray this prayer and then you're good. Jesus is not calling people to pray little prayers. Jesus is calling to something far greater than that. He is saying, drop it all. I must be your king. I must be your Lord. And if what you have done is prayed some little prayer at some point in your life, but you have never followed Jesus, do you have the one thing? Do you actually have, or have you done the one thing? Have you actually followed Jesus? Do you actually have eternal life? And the reality is, is that those who have entered the kingdom, those who have eternal life, those who have been saved, this is what they do. They follow Jesus very, very imperfectly. <laughs> the sin's still there. The battles are still there. The struggle's still there. But a person who has an eternal life is a person who is, by God's grace and with his help, following Jesus. And if that is not you, then whatever little prayer you prayed, that, that, that shouldn't be the thing assuring you that you have eternal life. The second argument that Jesus makes, leave it all and follow Jesus, he says, it's difficult, but not impossible. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus said here shocked the 12 disciples. Why? Well, the text doesn't tell us exactly, but in Judaism, wealth was generally thought to be a sign of God's favor and blessing and approval on one's life, making Jesus' statement here very, very hard for the disciples to grasp. Surely, from the disciples' perspective, if anyone is a candidate for heaven, it's this rich young ruler. I mean... He literally checks all the boxes. Well, I mean, <laughs> except for that one. Jesus says, you must leave it all. Come follow me. Entering the kingdom of God is difficult, but not impossible. And so we ask, why is it difficult? Well, it's difficult because one thing can keep you from salvation. Look at verses 24 and 25. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. For the rich young ruler, that one thing keeping him from salvation was his wealth. One thing. One thing. Uh, for another, it could be a single sin. I would follow Jesus. I would acknowledge his lordship, but that would mean that I would have to give up this one thing that I really, really, really love. In fact, it's my favorite habit. It's my favorite pleasure. It's my favorite person. My favorite pastime. My favorite idol. Let's just put it how it is. My favorite God. For another, it could be pride. It could be the one thing. I would love to follow Jesus, but that would mean admitting that I'm not good enough to get to heaven. I like to look at everything horizontally, but I believe that I am good enough to get to heaven, and I'm going to keep trying. 
I'd rather work for it. This, this is so deeply ingrained in me from childhood. Be good, be good, be good, be good. I'm not willing to let that go. It's my hope. It's my God. In Jesus' words, it would be easier for a camel, hump and all, to go through the teeny tiny eye of a needle. Imagine that you're on a game show and the host asks, the first question to you for a whopping $10, this is not the million-dollar question. It's like the $10 question. Is it possible to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle? Trick question. Better slow down. No! You can't squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. That's impossible. Entering the kingdom, leaving all, and following Jesus is difficult because a single thing, one single sin, one little treasure can keep you from salvation. And most people have at least one, if not dozens of treasures that they're not willing to let go of. But here's the thing. It's not impossible because with God, all things are possible. Look at verses 26 and 27. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, here's their logical conclusion, then who can be saved? In verse 27, Jesus looked at them and he said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. God is the God of the impossible. Anytime a person gets saved, anytime they let go of all and they follow Jesus and they acknowledge his lordship, that he is king. Anytime a person gets saved, as we sometimes say, it is a miraculous, powerful work of God alone. Doing for people what would be impossible for them or for anybody else to do for them. God is the one who brings people completely and totally to the end of themselves. God is the one who opens people's eyes to see their sin and help them see how powerless they are against it and help them see that because they are sinners through and through that they are condemned to eternity in hell. God is the one who loosens people's grip off of their treasures. Jesus is the one who lived sinlessly, died on the cross, and rose again. God is the one who calls and summons those who are completely dead to life. God is the one who saves. And you know what that means? It means that God can save you. It means that God can save anyone. With man, it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus says, leave it all and follow me. It's difficult, yep, for sure, but not impossible. And maybe you feel like the rich young ruler right now, and the, the tension that he felt in that moment, you feel right now. I, I want this. I want to follow Jesus. I, I, I want him to be my treasure. And yet I love these other treasures. I love this one treasure. And I'm not, I just don't want to give it up. And rather than making the choice that this rich young ruler made and walking away from Jesus, I would encourage you to do something else. And that is to pray to the God of the impossible. And say, Jesus, my hands are gripped so tight on this treasure Jesus, would you take my hands off of it? And would you take my life? I want to be yours. I want to follow you. God, would you do the impossible and would you save me? Jesus lays out one more argument in this text. Leave it all and follow Jesus. Leave it all and follow me, he says. It's costly for sure, but rewarding. You won't regret it, Jesus says. It's worth it. In fact, there's no one wealthier than the Christian. There's no one wealthier than the person who's a follower of me. Look at verse 28. Peter began to say to him after these shocking statements of Jesus, well, look, see, we've, we've left everything and followed you. 
as spokesperson for the disciples, Peter says, hey, you know what? We've done that. We've done what you called this rich young ruler to do, the thing that he would not do. We've done that. What return will we get? And Jesus now explains that, the exchange that occurs when you leave it all and follow Jesus. And Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. You lose a lot. That's a fact. You lose a lot, but you gain even more. There's a serious trade-off here. You stand to lose something, if not everything that you currently hold dear when you bow before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You will lose a lot, potentially. Look at verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who, catch this next word, next phrase, has left. Now Jesus is going to mention all these things that a person might lose. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands. Oh man, what's, what's left? And that's how it works. Following Jesus means relinquishing your grip on your family. Your friends, your possessions, your comfort, um, your acceptability by others in your family and in society, relinquishing your grip on everything. You might lose it all. Listen to the words of a direct descendant of Muhammad who left it all to follow Jesus. He, as he told a story, he said this, By denying Islam... I knew I was courting disgrace from my family and risking an honor killing. At the time, I lived with friends who turned furious when I admitted I had accepted Jesus into my life. They wrote to my father, a devout Muslim who prayed five times daily facing Mecca and was discipled by a holy man. Enraged, he, my father, rushed to confront my apostate apostasy he enlisted friends to harass me and force me to recant when that didn't work they committed me to a mental facility this man's story of loss actually gets worse from there from that paragraph and for you your loss could be like that or it could be much more every day than that friends that eh, they're just not really going to be your friends anymore Family who, you know, our whole family was like going this way, doing this thing, and now I'm not really there anymore. I'm over here doing this thing, following Jesus. And now I'm by myself. But that loss is only one side of the story. You will lose a lot, but you will gain even more. In fact, you will gain something right here, right now. And Jesus says you will also gain something later. You'll gain something now. Look at verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake to follow me and for the gospel to advance that, to have that, who will not, verse 30, receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Jesus is not preaching a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But he is saying that his people are rich. Very, very rich. When you follow Jesus, you gain a new father. Your earthly father might may reject you and abandon you. But you gain a new father, God himself. You gain a whole new family. Christians everywhere. A local church family. A home. And so on. He says you gain houses and lands, maybe not earthly, but certainly heavenly. And he makes very clear that those treasures will be mixed with persecution. But that's not the end of the story. He says, you'll gain something now, and you'll gain something later. The end of verse 30 says, and in the age to come. Now he's pointing forward. The age to come. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to return. 
to rule and reign as king. What will you gain then? In the age to come, eternal life. There's a serious trade-off here. The rich young ruler held on to his earthly treasure. He grasped that. But you know what he never gained? He never inherited eternal life. His opportunity has come and it is gone. And where is he today? He's not in heaven. For all of eternity, he is paying the price for his sin. His opportunity has come and gone, but yours is still here. And Jesus calls you, leave it all to follow me. That's the better trade, and you will never regret it. Stated one way, you lose a lot, but gain even more. And stated another way, you may be last, but you will be first. Look at verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. How exactly Jesus intends this statement, I'm not 100% sure, but we've just gone through this whole section where Jesus has turned everything completely upside down. And I think that he's doing that again here. What we often think is important is not, is not important to Jesus. Who we often think is first is not important, or is not first in Jesus' eyes, but last. What we often think has value has no value in Jesus' world. The first is last and the last is first. Follow me, Jesus says. Leave it all and follow me. It's costly but rewarding. I want to encourage you to trust the math of Jesus here. What he's saying is right. Whatever treasure you hold in your hand right now, it is temporal. It is now. It is here. It will be gone. It will burn up. And eternity in the presence of Jesus, that is forever. Jesus is calling you to bow before him. Jesus, I am a sinner. Save me. Be my king. And for those of us who have done that, I would remind us all that when things are tough, and they do get tough, Jesus mentions persecutions here and the the trouble that comes often as we choose to follow him. I would remind you in those moments to slow down and consider the trade that by God's grace he has provided for you. Yeah, there's going to be some trouble now. There are going to be some difficulties now. But think about the treasure that you have. You have Christ. You have eternal life. It's well worth it, but it's easy to forget that. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says of Jesus, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus did what the rich young ruler was unwilling to do so that you and I could be rich and have eternal life. And now he's calling you, leave it all and follow me. Uh, Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me at this time? As we conclude, as the pianist plays here, um, maybe you've realized, oh, I need to follow Jesus. I want to do that. Can I encourage you just to right there in your seat to pray to him and say, Jesus, be my Lord, be my king. I am a sinner. Save me. My life is yours now. I'm going to follow you. However God may be leading you, you pray to him at this time and then I will pray here in a moment.
Father, your name is to be reverenced, awed, praised. And we pray that your kingdom would come. And we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the King. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He's coming again. We praise you for his lordship. We praise you for who he is. We thank you that he came here to earth, that he humbled himself to take on flesh and blood, to be born of a woman, to be born under this law that Jesus spoke of to the rich young ruler and to completely live it perfectly, to fulfill it. Thank you that the King of Kings died on the cross for our sins and paid for them in full. Thank you for his words that it is finished, that that the price that needed paid for our sin, Jesus paid for it on the cross. Thank you that he has risen and that he is seated at your right hand. Thank you that he is coming again. And we lift our eyes to heaven and we await the return of the king. And God, it is our prayer, knowing that before Jesus, one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord to the glory of, the God, of God the Father. God, knowing and recognizing who Jesus is, we pray that people would bow now before the King. That he would, that Jesus would become their Lord. And so, God, we pray for people even sitting right here in this room with us today that they would that they would leave it all and follow Jesus, that he would become their one true king. God, would you save? We even recognize the, the words of this text, that with man it is impossible. We cannot, by our powerful uh, rhetoric and, and conversation and persuasion, we cannot persuade people to follow you into the kingdom of God. Those we love, our children, our family members, our spouses, our co-workers, our friends. We cannot save them. But what is impossible with man is possible with you because with you all things are possible. And so now in humility, Father, we ask that you would do the impossible, that you would save those people on our minds and hearts and that, that they would start following you as Lord and King, that we might do that together. And we ask that you would do this great work. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.